Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, April 21st, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, so much, so very much. <laughs> we have an overnight legislative session to talk about. Republicans self-censoring during debate. Bills on child labor, the auditor's office, property taxes. It's just all so very much. Hello, everyone. I'm an exhausted Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette and Cedar Rapids. With me this week, our Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief, Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Hello, Aaron. Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough is here. Good day, Caleb. Good afternoon, Aaron. We have Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Aaron. And much like there's a flood of news at the legislative level, I'm looking out my window and there is going to be a flood on the Mississippi River. Oh, no. Oh, that, that getting <laughs> the the uh, bill from the snow melt coming due? Is that what's going on? Yes. So thank you to your home state for all of the snow that they got this winter. <laughs> yeah, blame Wisconsin for everything. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> uh, we have Jared McNair of the Sioux City Journal here, which you can't blame Wisconsin for anything. Hello, Jared. <laughs> Aaron, the uh, the foul uh, that I was tested for on last week's podcast was uh, was upgraded to a flagrant uh, two call, so I will be ineligible for uh, one future podcast. Are, are you appealing that decision? I will be appealing with the the podcasting league. Yes. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Keep me posted. Yes. Uh, and finally, we have Gazette columnist Todd Norman. Hello, Todd. Hello. All right. First up this week, uh, let's start with that overnight legislative session uh, because I still have PTSD from it um, and because it has tentacles that kind of uh, uh, reach out to some of our other stories. So if you missed this, uh, and God bless you, you're the lucky one. On Monday night, uh, the Iowa Senate was in session for floor date, floor debate, pardon me, from 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. And yes, you heard that correctly. I did not misspeak 5 a.m. I know because I was there. Uh, and I think I may still be recovering a bit. The, the Senate was debating the child labor bill, which we'll talk about more later. Um, and that debate derailed in a major way uh, for procedural reasons that we'll also talk about later. Um, so that was something else. It was my first overnighter. Uh, I've covered late debates before, debates that finished uh, with voting at around like 1 or 2 a.m., uh, but nothing uh, before that literally infringed upon the next business day. Uh, I, it was amazing. I went home, had just enough time um, to have a bowl of cereal before getting my daughter up to school. Uh, had a shower, a quick change, um, um, was back at the Capitol. Uh, so needless to say, that was rough. Uh, Todd, in your days of the covering the legislature, did you ever have to pull an all-nighter? Uh, yeah, okay. a few a few times. Uh, I remember 2002 when they were doing the the last big livestock confinement mm. regulation bill. Uh, that debate started in the afternoon and lasted until just before 6 a.m., Wow, and I remember getting in my car just in time for the six a.m. news on Morning Edition. I knew that that was <laughs> that was sort of that was bad, and yeah, it was the same. Went home, cleaned up, got dressed, and drove. And I was living in Ames, so that was an Ooh. hour round trip, you know. And so I, I I stayed awake. I'm pretty sure I might have had cruise <laughs> control on or something, and just you know kicked back. Uh, the longest I back when I was a, a back in the in the dark ages when I was in high school and I was a page in the house, they went 
at least 48 hours straight to adjourn. Uh, so we were there for 48 hours and wearing the same clothes for two days. And uh, then there was a something happened. I think there was an accident or maybe a thunderstorm. I can't remember. And the, the lights went out in the Capitol. They had emergency lighting in the chambers, but in all the, but the back offices and everything, it was dark. And I had to sit by candlelight and listen to what the Senate was doing on a speaker because that's back before, you know, they had websites and, yeah. and stuff that you could check and see what, what they were doing. And so I had to write everything down amendments and, and tell the clerk uh, which bills the Senate had dealt with and had messaged so that they would, they would know because the phone systems weren't working because the electricity was out. And so they adjourned on a Sunday morning at about, uh, six or seven a.m. and then we got to go on our big page trip to Adventureland. <laughs> oh, I bet that was just a blast! I think I almost fell asleep on the tornado. <laughs> I was just going to say you probably <laughs> fallen asleep on the roller coasters. <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, that was that was long. But oh man, yeah, I remember it was and it was like in May. So they brought someone brought a TV to the floor and they watched the Kentucky Derby like on that last Saturday again before streaming and all of those. Obviously, as reporters, none of us would want to stick around that long. But if you're a legislator, you should have those kind of like elements to contend with at least once a session. Just like how how much do you really want to pass whatever bill this is that you're that you're working on? Like, do you do you want it bad enough to have to work by candlelight for like <laughs> 57 hours in a row? You know, let's 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 find out. Well, an important historical footnote to that 1989 death march is that i believe that's the first legislative session that the great rod Boshart covered oh wow and, so, and it's funny you mentioned rod i was just gonna say the 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 previous example of something like what happened this week uh that i could think of uh where it literally went again we've had many late nights but never all the way into the next day um was the collective bargaining bill uh, that went overnight into the Senate and wasn't voted on until like noonish uh, the next day. And I was around, I was covering the legislature at that time, but Rod covered that specific debate. And I remember coming in the next day and God bless him. He's still there. And and I had even uh, offered to tag Rod out and, you know, at like whatever, eight or nine, when I got there and said, I'll, I'll, I'll finish this off for you. Leave me your notes, go home. But uh uh, if if anyone who's listening knows Rod, you're not probably surprised to hear that he said, no, I'm I'm going to stick it out. I'll, and he made it all the way to the vote. Um, uh, so that was the last time we had, uh, I believe anyways, that we had yeah. something that literally went overnight like that. So. Well, and it's different because people didn't stick around, but there was the time that when Pat Murphy was speaker and they had a, mm-hmm. a labor bill on the floor that was lacking a few votes to pass and he left the left the voting machine open all weekend in case somebody wanted to just change their mind and come in and vote. Yeah. We were just, (laughs) I was just talking about this with another uh, one of our younger and I remember Caleb or Tom, it was was one of you. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, And I was, and I had forgotten some of the details of that Todd. So I appreciate that. But I, and that that was before my time, but I had heard the story about how Pat Murphy uh, from, uh, the house speaker from Dubuque had uh, left the voting machine open. Uh, Cause I think that's conversation started Caleb, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were kind of talking about how long does a voting machine stay open? Like how, how long do they have to cast a vote? And I said, well, 
I don't know if the rules are still the same, but at one point you could leave it open all weekend. Well, and, and Rod, Rod told the story. There was a, a session that spilled into Easter weekend and they were, there was a, a call of the house where they basically send troopers out. They can, they don't always do this, right, but they can right. send troopers out to find legislators who aren't present. And they pulled some legislator and I forget, who it was now out of uh, Easter Sunday service at a, oh at a nearby gosh. church. Wow. So wow. yeah, they, they yeah, kind of, things kind of get a little wild they toward can. the end of the session. Oh yeah. It's that, that reminds me speaking of my home state, uh, that a similar thing happened when they passed uh, governor Scott Walker's. Uh, Another collective bar- bargaining bill. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And the Democrats took off and, and uh, the, the Republicans sent the troopers after him. Um, yeah, and I hate to cause worry uh, for my colleagues here uh, on the podcast who have maybe haven't been through this, but you mentioned, Todd, some of those examples are at session shutdown, and we run the very much run the risk of having another uh, one, if not two, uh, consecutive. That, that's usually how it goes. They get to the last day and see that they could do a whole bunch of bills and get done. And so what ends up is you have debate until three in the morning uh, rather than splitting it up over two days. So, so we are in danger of a repeat uh, maybe sooner than later here. Cause the, the, the bright side of that is we're hearing that they may be close to uh, being able to shut the session down within the next week or two, but that's Aaron, the worry that we have to go through this again. The, uh, the record for going without sleep is 11 days. So you guys got some wiggle room, you know, <laughs> We haven't pushed that yet. Um, you know, I the, can't even the, imagine what kind of functional operation I would be at it <laughs> eleven days without sleep. The, the session shutdown should have like a sponsor, like a like Monster Energy drink or something like that. Just some sort of you know some way to <laughs> session shutdown presented presented by Red, by Bull. Red Bull. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Red Bull makes you sinusy die. <laughs> too too much Red Bull. <laughs> uh, and the ironic part of this whole thing of what happened Monday night was part of the reason the debate lasted so long was because Senate Republicans were being overly cautious during debate doing a, because of a recent Iowa Supreme Court ruling that, wait for it, cited Senate floor debate on a 2020 bill that took place during the overnight hours. So they were being cautious because of this ruling on a bill where they were criticized for their work overnight and they wound up working overnight, which is just, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) Uh, So speaking of that, um, uh, because that Supreme court ruling called attention to a Republican Senator who, by the way, I gotta say, this is just amazing. Um, So the Supreme court ruling that has had Republicans concerned about their words being used in, in future court um, considerations um, and that, and in that ruling, the, the court was sort of critical of one specific senator who was managing the bill that they were, the court was considering, the law. Um, and they said that the senator um, had kind of presented misinformation or, or uh, I can't remember if they accused him of outright lying in the, in the, in the court ruling, but, but essentially, but did say like he was presenting false information about the bill. Um, so fast forward to now this debate, this circus that happens overnight, Monday night. And then a couple days later on the Iowa Senate floor, who do they introduce and recognize, but former Senator Mike 
Mark Breitbach, who is the senator in question that was criticized in that Supreme Court ruling. It's, it's a magical place, this Iowa capital, um, I tell you. <laughs> so anyways, as I said, because of that ruling, state house Republicans have uh, started to be a little more tight-lipped during debate, and, and they have come out and said this is exactly why. We're not going to answer questions from Democrats about some of these uh, bills because we don't want our words misconstrued in the future uh, by the courts. Now, as I say that, it, it was interesting to me that they said that. Um, and then for the most of the rest of the week, they did answer questions uh, from Democrats. Uh, they were a little more cautious in their answers in some of them, but they at least took the, the questions. Um, Todd, I'm going to stay with you here um, for the historical perspective. Uh, this was a pretty unusual move, and it started with Senate Republicans literally calling it a, a caucus-wide policy. Um, some House Republicans had been doing it too, but it was more of a kind of uh, just kind of discussion within the group. Uh, and the Senate Republicans announced, gave a comment to myself and other reporters that, that this is a, a caucus-wide um, uh, policy. Um, do you, that that's pretty significant. Even and, and as I said, in fairness, they ended up they did answer most questions, um, even if they were cautious in some kinds of the rest of the week. But just the fact that they stated and made that policy, I mean, that I don't obviously my history doesn't go back super long, but I don't remember anything like that as far as self censoring on, on the floor. Uh, do you? Uh, the whole caucus again, specifically. Yeah, like, you know, every once in a while, a legislator won't answer a question. That's not necessarily unusual. That happens from time to time, even bill managers. Uh, but for a whole caucus to say we're not going to answer questions, that's that's. Yeah, well, it. I mean, it's it's pretty. At least it used to be. I I don't. I mean, I haven't been down there covering it day to day for a long time, but it used to be pretty. I don't remember any instances where uh, floor managers refused to yield. I mean, I think that was always. Yeah, you may you might not give the answer that they're looking for. You might not say much, but you would yield. And right. you know, being in the majority, there are, there are a lot of perks about it. You can get legislation passed. You can vote for stuff. You you know you, you run the you run the state house. I mean, it's there are all these things obviously that come with being in the majority that when you're in the minority you don't you don't get. And you know, one uh, you know. One disadvantage of being in the majority is you have to take a grilling from the the other side if you're sponsoring a piece of legislation or pushing it to passage. So I mean that's that's just part of the job, and I think there you expect people to do that. And and really, the, if you read the Supreme Court ruling, it was critical of sort of the misrepresentations on the floor about the origins of the bill and then where it went through the process and all of that. But the ruling did not hinge on the floor right. debate, what right. they didn't like was the log rolling, which really surprised me because we've seen, I mean, countless challenges to legislation over the years based on this idea that the Constitution says every bill must have a single subject and you can't basically just throw a bunch of unrelated stuff together and 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 pass it. Uh, and that's never, I've never seen that challenge uh, work. And so given this, that's exactly what the standings budget bill is literally every year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I'll be interested is if, 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 if they're taking the Supreme Court ruling so seriously into heart, will they will they dispense with 
doing what they do every year, which is throwing a bunch of crap into a bill that couldn't stand on its own the rest of the session and and pass it in the in the wee hours before adjournment. I mean, that's that'll be proof whether they're actually taking the the court rulings actual meat of the ruling seriously or whether they just are kind of throwing a tantrum about the about the Supreme Court, you know, right. pointing pointing out their shoddy process. So yeah. I mean that's and, that's 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 the gist of it is is the log rolling is the problem and we'll see what they think of that. Yeah. And, um oh sorry, go ahead, Judge. I, I was gonna say in in the course of, of all of that, it I guess it isn't entirely surprising if you're a majority party passing things that are contentious. A benefit of you know doing this obviously is you don't have to talk about contentious stuff and be uh on the record in the uh the same sort of way. So that's that's another perk if you're in the majority, like Todd was kind of talking about. Right. Well, and and they and we've seen sort of a slow, steady, well, maybe not so slow, but definitely steady erosion of sort of the legislative process since Republicans took over. And then when you have the trifecta and all that power, they've, I mean, you know, they they've kind of they got rid of the budget subcommittees and they. That, were, that used to, you know, sort of go line by line and, and decide what was going to be in the budget and take testimony from groups and agencies and things explaining why they asked for what they asked. Uh, I mean, now you're sending budget bills out of ways and means that don't have any any numbers in them, which they're just sort of these shells that I guess someone in a in a room with a very thick door is going to fill in at some point. Uh, I mean, and, and there's just been a lot of these sort of legislative norms that everybody sort of relied on as being parts of a process where they might have some ability to gain information or, or give input on things or, you know, the transparency of the process is also important, but, but that's sort of been, is been being whittled away. And I see this, you know, reluctance to answer questions as just one more norm that they're kind of deciding, well, why do we need to do that? I mean, we have the votes, we have control, we have the power, we don't have to answer to anybody. So that's, that's not a good trend. Um, and, and I think you raised a, a, a really noteworthy point, uh, Todd, that I want to circle back on uh, because I agree. And I uh, was just talking about this recently with some other state house reporters too about, so it'll be interesting to see how they handle the budget process and the budget bills this year. And, and for folks who maybe don't follow this super closely, there's a couple different ways you can go about this. Like as far as, and what we're talking about here is resurrecting uh, some kind of provision measure legislation that hasn't yet passed, couldn't get the bill across the finish line. So you throw it into a, a separate bill uh, often at the end of times at the uh, end of session, a budget bill um, and get it passed that way. Cause it gets tacked onto that. Um, and there's, you can sort of get away with that. Uh, um, and, and in a, in a, in a procedural way, sometimes like for instance, for example, a lot of times abortion bills that would pop up in this at the end of session would get amended into human health and human services bills or the health and human services budget, which, you know, is just kind of tangentially enough related that, that you probably uh, get away with that as far as, um, um, you know, from a legal standpoint or even maybe from a public perception standpoint. Then there's the, like we talked about, throwing it in the standings appropriations, which is the standings budget bill, which is literally just kind of a catch-all for budget elements that don't fit into any other one of the other departments. Um, and and sometimes policy gets thrown in there. And obviously, it has literally nothing to do with what's in the budget because that budget bill doesn't have anything to do with anything. 
Um, so it's a little more of a shady way uh, to do it that way. So it, it is going to be interesting um, uh, to see uh, how they close things out. And look, there are some very big, very interesting policies out there that have been unresolved so far and may not be able to pass on their own and, and might leadership want to slide them into a budget bill. We've got the pipeline stuff is the one that jumps right off the top of my head. Uh, the governor's uh, behind the counter birth control um, uh, provision is out there. Um, maybe this caucus bill that they're working on uh, doesn't have enough widespread support, but they sneak that into, uh, you know, and I don't know that they're going to, that's not a, a a reporting that I've heard that they're going to do that. I'm just saying there are examples out there that, that they could um, um, do some of these things. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. All right, moving on. Uh, But uh, kind of staying on the the topic, uh, we may as well, talk about that child labor bill. Stephen Colbert is talking about it, so me may as well, too. Uh, And by the way, that's Stephen Colbert, the late-night talk show host, not to be confused with our similarly spelled Stephen Colbert, the best damn podcast engineer in all of Iowa politics. Uh, So anyways, uh, (laughs) this is the one that they voted on at almost 5 a.m. Tuesday morning after that extensively long debate, uh, and the Senate finally passed that version of the bill, child labor, youth employment, whatever your uh, tribe calls it, um, the bill that would um, uh, relax some regulations and allow uh, teenagers uh, to work in more jobs and, and for longer hours. Um, so the Senate passed it. The House had its version, which is similar but different-ish. Um, it had it on their debate calendar, but they didn't bring it up late this week. So we'll see. Uh, where that goes uh, in in the coming days and weeks. Um, Jared, as I just noted, this bill is getting national attention. Um, I I guess I'll say that this legislature hasn't necessarily shown a a concern about when Iowa gets put in the national spotlight on issues. But is there any reason to believe that in this case, that uh, that national attention that this bill is drawing? I mean, I talked about Stephen Colbert, but it's the Washington Post has uh, written about it. Uh, other news um, programs have noted it. Is that going to slow the progress maybe of this in the, in the Republican-led Iowa legislature? Uh, Aaron, if this was a, if we had a video format, I would queue up the, uh, the Bugs Bunny gif where he just says no. Um, uh, you know, la- last month we had the, the register poll about this legislation that found 42% opposition among respondents. And it still passed the Senate. So I don't know how much out-of-state opposition would would slow things down. Um, And, you know, since the pandemic kind of started in March 2020, so more than three years now, we've heard from Republican legislators and business leaders about all the open jobs around. We've talked about that on the show before even. And, you know, one of the ways this bill has been talked about at times is as a means of addressing that gap between open jobs and, uh, you know, participation in the Iowa workforce. And, you know, opponents have talked about uh, this legislation's potential to undermine uh, unions because younger people just would not know their options necessarily. So the theory goes. Um, So if you can do those things with one bill, uh, plus maybe agitate some national figures who you're not the biggest fan of either, um, that would be all the more reason to to get something passed if you're in the driver's seat on legislation like this instead of, you know, slowing down too much, I would think. 
Yeah, and 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 to be honest, I kind of knew the answer to that question because if uh, <laughs> if if Senate Republicans uh, were worried about how national media perceives them, um, my my seat in the Senate chamber would be on press row and not up in the gallery. So. <laughs> <laughs> kind of have some history to draw on there. But it is, I mean, it, it, it is. And, and part of the reason it's a national story is I wasn't the only place this is happening. There are other conservative led states that are, that are running uh, similar bills, I believe. And, and forgive me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe Arkansas just passed something uh, similar. Yeah. With uh, Governor uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders there. So so this isn't happening in a, in a vacuum either. That is the case with a lot of uh, legislation that's been uh, running through the Iowa legislature this year. In uh, other areas of, of national attention, I just uh, was saw this week that um, on this bill, the uh, Bill Dotzler kind of after uh, Senators Dickey and Whitver wouldn't uh, yield to questions, him kind of doing saying his what 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 he said uh, was at the top on the top of the subreddit uh, public freakout and TikTok cringe, which TikTok cringe weird history is not really cringe anymore. It's both cringe and cool. So I think people liked it. And similarly, public freakout is not necessarily people doing bad freakouts. It's just <laughs> people yelling about stuff. So I think that this, it was generally a supportive vibe, but. Yeah. Something. Interesting. And you're talking about his reaction to that, right? When he, he gave a speech about why he thought it was a bad thing that uh, what Senate Republicans were doing with drawing from debates, his, his, his remarks in response yes. to that, Caleb, that's a drama. Yep. Yeah. Not to be confused with his story about raccoon. Right. Which, which could also drive some national attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, and that was all on the same night, by the way, what night for Bill Dotzler? Uh, that was, it was earlier than the day was the raccoon story. And then he was uh, um, front and center of that blow up over, over the debates and the Republicans not yielding. Um, which, you know, way, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jared. No, no, go, sorry. Go hey, yeah, I was just getting really quick. I was going to say, by the way, that moment started when Bill Dotzer asked um, Senator uh, uh, Adrian Dickey to, to yield and Senator Dickey just got up and said no and sat back down. And there was this prolonged stare down between uh, uh, Dotzler and it, it was a good few seconds before Zach Walls then got up and said, Democrats are go to caucus. And, and even after they did that, as senators were starting to stand up and walk away, Dotzler and Dickey were still locked eyes there. So it was a pretty uh, intense moment. It was a little maybe uh, um, toxic masculinity on display there in the Iowa Senate, but uh, it was something else. Go ahead, Jared. I, I was just going to point out that, you know, um, uh, a labor bill passing it at 5 a.m. might be appropriate because 5 a.m., good shift time, uh, you know. <laughs> change in <laughs> in certain places so right. and yeah. passed the bill just as the kids were getting off of their third shift uh job and getting ready for school that's not true they can't work that late i got a asterisk make sure i don't get ourselves in trouble they could <laughs> 9 and 11 p.m it extends it to right not 5 a.m only we have to work until 5 a.m aren't we the lucky ones all right um so uh, another bill that uh, this whole debate issue showed up in recently um, was uh, the House's passage of legislation, which we talked about last week on the show, um, um, has to do with uh, uh, many things, but the, the, the one that got the most 
debate in the chamber anyways was over um, the uh, declaration that guns uh, would be permitted in vehicles in places like school parking lots, uh, so as long as they're stored and out of sight. Um, and uh, one of the few Republican no votes on that bill uh, was from your neck of the woods, Sarah. And, and uh, I saw he talked about that vote uh, this past weekend at a legislative forum, which, first of all, uh, God bless him for participating in that legislative uh, forum. We've talked about that on the past on past podcasts here. But uh, tell us about uh, the Republican from your area and what he had to say about that vote on that bill. Yeah, so Gary Moore was one of two Republicans who voted no on that bill. And uh, Gary Moore is a uh, retired executive uh, at uh, Eastern Iowa Community College. He was their executive director for external affairs for 15 years. Um, so he, he did legislative advocacy and, and, uh, and policy advocacy. So, um, so he cited that experience um, as well as uh, his 13 grandchildren when uh, in explaining to this group of people his vote against uh, that bill. And he also talked about how he didn't think it was a good idea to have legalized lock guns in parking lots and cars on tailgate days at the University of Iowa, which, for, you know, there, there are lots of, lots of people, they do get kind of rowdy sometimes. So uh, that, was, that was one, another reason that uh, he, he didn't think that that was an appropriate situation to, uh, to have easier access to, to firearms. Um, and then just in general, uh, the other thing that he said was, um, that I thought was interesting, you know, if, if he said, I don't think it's a good idea to allow students access to guns in their cars. If today they get an F or they flunk out of school, they might not normally do anything about it, but in the spur of the moment, they might. Um, so, you know, having that increased access to guns for students in their cars as well. Um, there were a couple other folks there, a couple other Republicans there uh, who, who voted for the bill. And one of them was uh, Representative Mike Fondren. Um, he's a new Republican from Davenport and he also has experience with um, education. He uh, was previously the spokesperson for the Davenport Community School District. And he really emphasized that um, he felt like this was already happening and that it uh, it would essentially allow uh, law-abiding gun owners to to continue to do what what may already be happening um, and then uh, another one um, uh, Norlin Mumson who's from DeWitt he his argument was that uh, we can't forget that murder is illegal um, no matter what kind of weapon people use. So, um, so that was a range of opinions at, uh, at the forum there. I thought it was that, really interesting. That comment from Representative Moore um, is interesting about, you know, a student being upset about a grade because that did happen here in Iowa at the University of Iowa back in the 90s, I it was 91. Um, the shooting a PhD student um, was upset. It, it was not a grade. I think he was upset that his, uh, his paper didn't get accepted to a conference or didn't get an award or something like that. And he ended up shooting multiple people in the, uh, I forget what program he was in, but the physics program or something like that. So yeah, definitely have some history there. Yeah. Um, I got to tell you, I, I apologize for taking this all on a tangent here, but um, as I hear that from Sarah, that the thing, the main, my main takeaway is uh, I'm, I'm appreciative that uh, quad cities Republicans, at least are still showing up to legislative forums to, to hear that there's three of them. 
uh, there at these. That's awesome. We've talked about that. And, and, and look, that, I, I don't mean that to sound callous and, and that definitely should not be taken as a partisan statement. I, I don't give a rip what the letter is behind people's names, but we've talked about this in the podcast in the past, how these um, forums are being less and less attended um, um, and, and mostly by Republicans uh, across the state. So it's, it's, it's great to hear that, uh, uh, that, that uh, Republicans are still coming out to those in the quad cities, at least. Um, and, 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 and it, and it shows you the range of uh, views you can have on, on legislation like this. And I think it's good that those folks, no matter where they stand on things are, going in front of the people they represent and talking about them. So good for them. Yeah. All right. as, a, oh, as sorry, a, go ahead, Todd. As a tailgater, I appreciate the, uh, the thoughts on whether it's a good idea to have people at tailgate, bring guns on the university of Iowa campus, not, you know, for, for both sides of the coin, a, a bad loss could, you know, could trigger something or they could just start shooting them into the air if we beat Ohio State or something like that. So I think I think either way, it's probably a, a bad idea to to mix the tailgating and the gunplay. And and that that argument uh, uh, was noted during debate too. someone brought that up that, uh, you know, there are heightened emotions in uh, stadium football stadium parking lots uh, before and after games. There are. um uh, consumption practices that maybe uh, affect people's better judgments. So uh, that, it, that was one of the arguments we heard too about why that could be a dangerous thing. Uh, I just like to make a quick plug for um, my Sunday story because there's also a concerning provision in this bill um, that's been little noticed and hasn't gotten much attention. And that's that Iowans previously ineligible to carry firearms would be allowed to possess or acquire them and that they could carry unloaded weapons in vehicles. So the little notice change would repeal sections of the Iowa code that make it a crime for certain ineligible people to carry dangerous weapons, including those addicted to alcohol and those where there's probable cause to believe they're a danger to themselves or others. So just quick background, in 2021, Iowa Republicans passed a law eliminating the requirement for Iowans to obtain a permit to carry or possess handguns um, from their county sheriff. And so when gun permits were required, a person addicted to alcohol could not qualify for a permit. Um, it should be noted there was no standard for what addicted to alcohol meant. Um, and it also said that uh, people a sheriff believed were a danger to themselves or others um, were prohibited from attaining a gun permit. But now that permits are no longer required, House Republicans say neither of those sections are needed in the Iowa Code um, and should be removed. However, if a person's adjudicated as being addicted to alcohol or being a danger to themselves or others, um, they still would not be allowed to possess a firearm, according to an analysis by House Republican staffers. Um, however, Lynn County Attorney uh, Nick Maybanks, a Democrat, um, says that that's concerning because allowing someone to acquire guns when they're ineligible to carry them or allowing people to transfer guns to those ineligible to carry dangerous weapons uh, only means that more guns potentially in the hands of dangerous individuals. Yeah, we, we touched uh, on that a little bit in last week's podcast, but uh, now that it's out there, uh, as a reminder, definitely go check out Tom's story. Uh, uh, as he said, some stuff in there that, uh, you know, we talked about the things that everybody's been talking about, but Tom's story got into some stuff that not a lot of people have been covering, but it's pretty important too. Uh, so make sure you check out that story. Before I move on, Jared, were you going to uh, add anything to that? Okay, good. All right. I, I misread the body language uh, on the Zoom here. Okay. 
Um, where are we? I, I've completely lost. There's so much going on. Um, also this week at the Capitol, the auditor's bill made its triumphant return, uh, earning passage in the House. Uh, so it previously passed the Senate. Uh, Republicans amended the legislation in a way that they said addresses some of the concerns raised by Democratic Auditor Rob Sand and other critics of the bill. Um, but that amendment sure didn't appease Sand. Uh, Tom, uh, you covered this story, and uh, Caleb, I think you were at the press conference, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, when, when Sand was asked about whether the amended bill was any better, he said something to the effect of, would you rather be drawn or quartered? Is, is that, is, is that well, right? I think it was, I think it was, would you rather be hanged or drawn and quartered? Okay. That's uh, a second. <laughs> that's if it's an execution yes. either way. That's, that's, yep, that's correct. So Sand was asked um, by a reporter about um, House Republicans amending the bill to allow the auditor access to some categories of prohibited personal information, such as, medical records, student educational records, peace officers report, um, and any private in, in, uh, information an individual would reasonably expect uh, to be kept private. Um, so anyway, the, the amendment would allow um, the auditor to access um, some of that information, provided the auditor's office follows generally accepted uh, government accounting standards or in cases of embezzlement or theft uh, or to comply with any other state or federal regulation. So he was asked about um, the, the changes and um, and uh, essentially what he said was um, that those changes left his office debating uh, which was worse, the bill that previously passed the Senate or the amended bill um, passed Thursday by the House. And as um, as Caleb noted, his quote to reporters was, would you rather be hung or drawn and quartered up to you? Um, and what specifically he disliked about uh, the changes that House Republicans made to the Senate bill um, was the addition of language limiting the subpoena power of the auditor's office. Um, first of all, would you rather be hanged or drawn and quartered would make an excellent Twitter poll. Um, I, I may put that out there. Um, and the other thing, we, just real quick, because I, I happened to catch uh, Auditor Sand in, in the Capitol the other day, um, and uh, his other main concern with the bill, and this has been in there from the start, this was before and, and after the amendment, um, was if there's a dispute over an audit and, and, and this information that the office would want to uh, uh, seek in, in an investigation that would um, the auditor's office would no longer be able to take that that dispute to court it would be solely decided by an arbitration panel and that arbitration panel's ruling would be final and that's a three-person panel that would include the auditor's office the agency being investigated and the third one would be an appointee by the governor so I think in fairness, you can understand why the auditor's office would have concern that this three-member panel could very much be tilted by the third member coming from a politically appointed office of the state. You know, uh, uh, you know, if 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 the if 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 the if the office if the auditor's office wants to investigate um, the Department of Agriculture over uh, some kind of alleged misuse of taxpayer funds and the third person on you're going to have rob sand someone from uh mike nag's office and then the first person is going to be someone 
appointed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. I mean, look, I, I'm not saying right or wrong, but it's pretty easy to see where the concern for that uh, comes from making that panel's ruling final. So that's the other um, big part of that, that the auditors now, now the, the Republicans push back that, Hey, what, why does he need this information in the first place? We're, we're not eliminating anything from his scope of authority that he should need for any investigation that that's the counter argument. Um, so on and on this goes and, and we'll see um, whether that bill passes when it goes back to the Senate. Uh, they did change it enough. I, I would suspect it will, but they changed it enough that we'll see what the Senate thinks about it. Well, and so about that arbitration panel, um, I would note that uh, a, a bipartisan coalition of um, yes. state auditors and and um, other professional public accounting groups um, have raised that very same concern with the arbitration panel. In fact, the National State Auditors Association, in a letter, said that that arbitration board, quote, presents a clear threat to the state auditor's independence. Um, and that uh, as it's comprised, that it clearly favors the audited agency rather than having an objective third party um, decide the matter. So, again, you know, not just a, um, a concern that's being put out there by Democrats or, or, or by the Democratic state auditor, but, you know, something that, um, you know, uh, bipartisan, nonpartisan groups are, are saying is um, is definitely um, problematic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Another interesting one to follow as we um, uh start the countdown to the close down of session here. Um, you know, uh, Aaron, uh, at least two people in the history survived uh, three different attempts at uh, hangings, uh, an Australian gentleman and an English gentleman. So if you're, if you're having to choose one or the other, hanging would probably be the way to go because I don't think anyone has ever survived being cut into pieces. <laughs> I don't, I don't. Fantastic. So we yeah. don't need the Twitter poll. We don't need no. We have scientific. Uh, yeah. We, we have, have history data. on our side. We yeah. have data. That's fact. That's what you get, folks, from the On Iowa Politics podcast. We solve questions. We solve riddles real time with real time data that and facts and evidence. I love it. That's fantastic. And, we, we, and you get literal gallows humor. <laughs> right. Oh, which is the only kind of humor that you can have when you've been covering this legislative session uh, um, at this point. Um, all right. Also this week. Uh, both chambers passed their versions of property tax changes. That's right. This far into the podcast, we're going to start talking about taxes, kids. Uh, we could get way into the weeds here and bore you into a coma. Uh, so let's try to avoid that, uh, Caleb. So that's the challenge that I put to you. Uh, without getting too deep into the specific, blah, blah, to the specifics, um, how close? Here's the question. So both the Senate and the House are working on something. They're 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 just different enough. Um, how close are Senate Republicans and House Republicans to reaching a deal on this bill before the session's out? Are, are we going to get a bill? Are they going to come together on this? Yeah, um, it's hard to tell exactly at this point. Um, but the bills did have very different mechanisms for how they would actually drive down property taxes. And as you mentioned, Aaron and the venerable Kay Henderson said once this year, um, once you start, once you say levy, people want to start listening to music. So I'm going to try to keep this brief. Um, the the House version would just cap your annual tax bill increase at 3% for most prop for residential and agricultural properties. So if your assessment goes up, no matter how much your assessment goes up, your bill can only be 3% more than last year, unless you make certain uh, improvements to your property. The Senate version, uh, I am going to have to say it, but would limit how much a local government can levy if taxable value rises above a certain percent. 
um, each year. So leaders have said, you know, over the past couple of weeks that they are conceptually very close on these. But I mean, looking at how the bills are actually written, those aren't really things that they're going to be able to kind of meet in the middle on. It's not like they're two different numbers that they just have to kind of figure out what the right number is. They're going to have to pick one or the other, right? Right. That's my understanding. They're going to have to ultimately pick one approach. Um, So that's kind of what's left up in the air. And each bill has several different um, changes to school taxes, uh, both the the foundational tax and the the Pearl levy um, and and some other bonding questions. But those those kind of uh, property tax limitations are kind of the main point. Um, but House Speaker Pat Radley said yesterday that he had had a conversation with uh, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitmer um, this week. But his exact quote was, uh, if we can find a way to achieve that, we're more than happy to continue to work with the Senate. So it doesn't really seem like a slam dunk at this point. Um, but obviously, both chambers and both parties really want something. So I have to think they do something before um, they leave the morning this year. And as a note on that, I don't know if we have another trivia question, but I mean, is this also common where, you know, both of these bills were almost unanimous in both chambers. Um, so it's not a partisan thing. It's just each chamber has a different idea and they can't seem to agree. I, I wonder if that happens often. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I can think of um, something similar. And look, that kind of speaks to the um, the wonder that our property taxes and, and it's such a complicated complex system. And if you're doing something like this, you can go about things 20 different ways. Um, uh, so I don't know that I can think of uh, another example like that. Todd jump in here. If you can, uh, even like, if you go back to the gas tax, there was pretty, you know, unanimous agreement about, I mean, I guess that's maybe a bad example because that's simple. You either raise or lower the tax. I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another example that would even correlate to this. And maybe it just doesn't And because property taxes are so unique. It's not just as simple as raising or lowering one rate. There's, you know, so many different things that go into it. Yeah, back when they used to have, uh, you know, big gambling debates, those were mm-hmm. sort of the two chambers would not agree on how to approach it. And it would be pretty bipartisan. I mean, everybody, there were, you know, Democrats that were both in favor and against expanded gambling and Republicans on both sides. And so those were, those were always debates that didn't cut neatly, you know, along partisan lines and, and the chambers would get stuck. Mm, But uh, it seems like taxes is always, I mean, that's, we've seen that now multiple times with this trifecta that the, the Senate and the house versions of tax cuts are, are different and it's t- i mean i was it wasn't last year or the year before that they spent quite a bit of time in overtime trying to hammer that out yeah yeah well and what's interesting and it backs up your point caleb is um it's it's just interesting that philosophically they're both trying to do the exact same thing and um they're kind of going about it in a somewhat similar approach but the specific mechanism itself is very very different um, and, and not only do they have to, like you've pointed out, decide one or the other, there's not like a common ground. The other thing is when you talk to legislators in both, especially Republicans in both chambers, they really like their version. Senate Republicans love their version. House Republicans love their version. So it's going to be tough to convince some of these folks to take up the other side, whoever, whoever's is not chosen. So I'm with you. I think it's, it seems more likely than not that they do something, but I don't think it's a given because of, and look, you know, 
Um, here's the other thing. And I, and I uh, speaking to the venerable Kay Henderson, she said this. Um, so I'll give credit to her, but I agree wholeheartedly is um, I don't think it's an hundred percent must do this session because assessments have already gone out that whatever they do now, isn't going to affect anything immediately anyways. So if they decided, Hey, we can't come together on something. Let's, let's really hit the discussions hard this summer and fall. Um, have a plan ready to go. That's already agreed upon essentially uh, get it ready to run first thing January when we come back next year and, 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 and maybe do it that way. I mean, I, and I, again, this isn't something that I've heard. It's just something I could, as I think myself through this is, is uh, something they could possibly do. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Has um has anyone that's kind of kicking this around, especially more on the Republican side, even even raised the possibility of even having a slight bit of fear of you know meddling in the the market in any way? Because one thing that you know the assessors have talked about is values are seeing increases because of it being a seller's market in in 2022, and there being a high demand leading to to some of these things. And so I'm just curious if there's been any talk about that kind of aspect of, of all of this. Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, the capping, the idea of capping the bill rather than the assessment increase was to um, address that concern. Cause I think under both of the bills, the assessment of a property wouldn't change. So it would still, you know, you would still have, if your assessment went up this year, it would stay the same. And, and so that would be, you know, as, as you mentioned, I think good, you know, property owners want their value to increase, but don't necessarily want their taxes to increase with it. So that that's kind of, but yeah, I, I don't think that um, it would affect. I, I don't know if there would be broader yeah, effects on no, the market, but it wouldn't affect your stuff. Yeah, that's a really good question, Jared, and that brings up that that's a that's a good point to get in there for folks who may not have been following this as closely. Because and and I think that's exactly what they were trying to address. Um, when they wrote these bills is uh, we're not going to tell assessors how, what they can as- assess a housing at all. We're going to do is say how much taxes could be collected on those increases. Um, and that is one thing that the, both bills do do similarly. Um, now I'm not an expert. I don't Someone might uh, come and say, well, that still could mess with the market in some way. I, I honestly don't know that. I, I just know that's why they uh, went about it that way. Obviously, well, something I wonder, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. Oh, sorry. Well, and I wonder too, just like um, the legislators got a lot of blowback from local uh, cities and counties for put, this, correcting the, the rollback and then, you know, in the middle of budget season. So uh, cities and counties certainly want more certainty heading into planning for um, fiscal 2025, it would be. So, um, so I don't know if that would be, you know, move up the deadline. For them, if they if they want to avoid, uh, you know, passing property tax cuts that would affect uh, cities and counties, then that next July first fiscal year, I'm not sure. Yeah, that that could be. Um, I will say though, if there's one group that I have heard the least concern about throughout this process from the folks drafting these bills, it's how it will impact local governments. <laughs> so, and, and that's not a commentary on whether that's good, bad, or otherwise, that's just the, the, how it's been. Uh, uh, they, uh, in the, to pass along the words of the Republicans, we are representing the taxpayer, um, uh, not the, uh, the local government. So we're looking out for the taxpayer. Um, so, but I mean, that's a fair question. Um, and, 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 you know, they have made that point. Like they, they, they talk about wanting to have the school.
school funding done right by a certain time so schools can know when they're when they uh how, how to budget so 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 maybe that motivates them we'll see we will see and when we do we'll talk about it on a future edition of on iowa politics that's it for this episode if you enjoyed it tell your friends and subscribe to us on streaming audio services like itunes spotify and amazon and now that you've listened to the on iowa politics podcast Make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Waterloo Falls Courier, Mason City Globe Gazette, Council Bluffs Daily Nontorell, and the Sioux City Journal. Scarlet Runner will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who you think should be featured on the show, send us a sound file. For Tom Barton, Kayla McCullough, Sarah Watson, Jared McNett, Todd Dorman, and our producer, Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thank you all for listening. is my religion. Some will be my guy.
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.